In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes." Second six chapters of Daniel, from chapter 7 to the end, are are concerning prophetic matters. It's the future. And the first two were very symbolic, very interesting visions that Daniel had of different beasts and and animals and uh, pertaining to particular kings and empires. Chapter 9 is different. This is not that Daniel is accosted by a, a revelation like he has in the previous chapters. Instead, he is going to pray in the first part of the chapter. It's what we're looking at today. And then next time we'll see that an angel is going to appear to him, answer his prayer, and explain to him what is going to happen in the future. So it is not the same, uh, to use the technical term, apocalyptic genre as the other chapters have been, but this is uh, is still prophetic. It's still very important. We also are jumping forward in time again. You remember the first six chapters were more or less chronological order. And the second half are in chronological order in the terms of when Daniel got them, but they have to be placed in between the previous six chapters. So this is the first year of Darius the Mede. This is circa 538 B.C., This is the year that Babylon fell because Darius the Mede was the one that took over ruling Babylon on behalf of the Persian Empire. And we've already discussed some that Darius is not known to history, although he is known to scripture, which still counts as history, of course. Uh, It seems that Darius was either another name for Cyrus the Persian. That's a very popular view. I tend to think that Darius was a subordinate ruler who was put in charge of a, a district of the Persian Empire and was named Darius. Do not be confused when it says Ahasuerus in verse 1. This is not the same Ahasuerus as the book of Esther. This is a different man. They used similar names as just as the kings of England, right? They were all named Henry or George or something like that. It's the same thing for the Persian kings. Different guy. He is a Mede. And you'll see how it says he was made king, which is a, a passive voice, right? Something was made over him, over the realm of the Chaldeans. So it, it seems to be that while Cyrus was the ruler of the entire empire, Darius was the man that he delegated to rule over Babylon specifically. Because remember, the Medes were a very big part of the Persian empire, although it was a subordinate role. He would have been given a, an honorary position like this. And we are going to look in great detail next week at the dates and the times and how this all fits together. So uh, don't worry about that. We will get to that soon. But we're looking at about 538 BC when Daniel began to pray this. And again, he does not have a dream. He does not have a vision that grabs hold of him like before. But rather it says he perceived in the books. He perceived in the books that the exile was nearly over, that the years that had been delegated or allocated for Israel to be in exile were coming to an end. And the book that he is specifically referring to, as he says in verse 2, is Jeremiah the prophet. So if you keep your finger in Daniel, will you turn to your left just a little bit and get to Jeremiah? We're going to read these two prophecies. Jeremiah was the prophet who spoke during the final days 
of the kingdom of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. He started prophesying in the reign of Josiah, who was one of the best kings Judah ever had. And yet God sent him to go out there and prophesy against the hypocrisy of the people. Because I've used this term before, it was a Josiah revival, meaning they followed Josiah, but the second Josiah died, everything went back to normal. They loved him, and so they went along with his religious plan, even though their hearts were not changed. But that went all the way to King Zedekiah, who was the last king. So he prophesied from the height of Israel's repentance all the way to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. So their lives would have overlapped. Jeremiah would have been an old man when Daniel was a young man. But Jeremiah's prophecies were, of course, written down. We know his scribe's name was Baruch. There was a point when all of his writings were burned, and Jeremiah said, we're going to have to write it all down again. It was very important that this stuff was written down, not just because it was scripture, but because of what we see in Daniel chapter 9, that the exiles were to know what was going to happen. So will you read with me in Jeremiah 25? I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah prophesied, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So 70 years. God says, when you are exiled, it's going to last for 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you back. So that's a very specific date. There are folks that want to say things like, the scriptures are so vague, how could anybody know what they're talking about? Scriptures are not vague. They're incredibly specific. And if something is clouded, that's usually because God wanted it to be clouded, but much more of it is is more detailed than you think. Turn to the right a little bit, Jeremiah 29. You all know Jeremiah 29, don't you? If if you've ever been to Lifeway or you've ever been to a Christian bookstore, you know Jeremiah 29. It's everywhere. And that's okay. And again, we are going to look at the exact dates and the exact timeline. It's not pertinent for the study today, but uh, there will be a lot of extra information for us next week. But let's look at Jeremiah 29. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is in this paragraph. You're going to see where it fits, and hopefully you'll gain a fresh appreciation for it. Thus says the Lord through Jeremiah, When 70 years, how long? When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. There it is. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay, God promised to restore Israel When they repented in sincerity after 70 years. So Daniel, who was a man of God, knew his scripture. He was reading the book of Jeremiah. And he recognized by studying it that Jeremiah had said it would be 70 years. And Daniel did not say things like, now that must be a symbolic number. Daniel looked at his watch and said, it's been 70 years or close to it. Again, we'll talk about it next time. And he begins to do what God had said would need to be done. He said, if you repent and seek me after 70 years, I'll restore you. So here's Daniel. He's one of the three men overseeing the entire Persian Empire at this point, under the reign of Darius. 
in his old age. And he begins to pray, but not just to pray, to repent in sackcloth and ashes. What is sackcloth? It's like burlap. It's very uncomfortable. It's not, it's not very fancy. It shows everybody I am deliberately discomforting myself. I am deliberately not dressing up so that everybody can see how distraught I am. It's a sign to the Lord as well that I'm sincere. They would pour ashes on their head, the opposite of anointed with oil. Ashes, sackcloth, prayer, fasting. I'm not even going to eat while I pray for this. That's what he's doing. This is, this is like the Secretary of State doing this. This is like the, the Vice President. This is somebody that everybody would have seen and known because of what the Lord had said. This tells us a few things. Daniel regarded Jeremiah as a legitimate prophet and regarded his words as scripture. This is important to know because people that say the Bible was written way later and that all this stuff, nobody really thought it was scripture at the time. You see the process of inscripturation in the Bible itself. It wasn't all written at the same time. You all know that. Jeremiah wrote his book. Daniel has his book, reads his book well before his was even written. It was functioning like scripture long before there was the official canon. We've discussed this in, in detail. But this furthermore tells us that Daniel evaluated his life by the scriptures. Daniel served God and he knew that God had been revealed in the scriptures Daniel didn't try to get cute and say, I've got to find my own way towards God. He knew that was foolish. Why not learn from the people that have already heard from God and wrote it down? And he acted as if it was the legitimate word of the Lord. It's remarkable. Peter said the same thing about Paul in 2 Peter 3.16. He said, Paul's writings are kind of hard to understand. He says, and people twist them to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter said that about Paul's writings, the rest of the scriptures. You know, somebody contacted the church not long ago, and maybe they're watching today. So, yeah, we did see this. And it was a whole tirade about how Paul was not a legitimate apostle, and he wrecked the gospel, and we don't know anything about Jesus, and Jesus would never have approved of Paul. And, well, Peter approved of Paul. And Jesus told Peter, you're Peter, man, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. So there's something to be said for that. But we're not only to know that it's the word of God, but to act like it's the word of God. Everybody has their theories about God, about life. Isn't it interesting that the younger you are, it seems the more theories about life you have. Because you grow up and the older you get, the more you see those theories just get blown out of the water. Until eventually you get to the point you go, nah, I don't know. <laughs> That's not a bad place to be, is it? It's kind of funny that agnostics sometimes have the strongest opinions about life. The people that say they don't know. But God's word is something different. People that say that Christians think that they're so arrogant that God just spoke to them. Uh, no, he didn't speak to us. He spoke to us, as in all of us. That's the whole point of what we're doing here, is that we are responding to God's word, his revelation. And in days like today, we need this, because we also are living in dark days. They're not as dark as the ones Daniel was living in, but we're certainly headed that way if the example of scripture is of any meaning, and of course it is. And the Lord is going to give us in these chapter, this chapter an example of how to repent, how to do it right. So let's look at this. We're going to start and look at his prayer today. Verses 4 through 10. I'm going to divide it into three portions. And the first part is the confession of sin. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, literally shame of face. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All this talk of open shame. We don't really have an honor culture today anymore. In fact, we really don't like honor and shame in this culture. We kind of have a campaign against those things. But especially at this time, you know, honor was, it was not just... It wasn't just something internal, it was something external. You were honored by, by the, your titles and by the, the apparel that you wore and all of that. And by Daniel putting on sackcloth and ashes, he is actually and technically shaming himself. It's like, that's shameful to go about like that. You're, you're, the, you're the prime minister of, of Persia. What are you doing dressed like this? What are you doing allowing your hair to grow limp? And what are you doing not eating? It's shameful. And the whole point is Daniel saying, we ought to be ashamed because of the things that we've done. And this, this prayer, among others in Scripture, is a, is a true example of what repentance looks like. Here's a, here's a Christian word. The first time anybody got saved under my ministry, I was talking about repentance, repentance, repentance. I was preaching from the Gospel of John, and this sweet little girl named Sarah came up, and she goes, what does repentance mean? And I realized I did not define repentance once. And I said, well, it's when you... Turn away from your sin and decide I'm going to serve Jesus from now on. And you ask for forgiveness. And she goes, oh, okay. And she got saved. So I don't want to ever fail to do that. What does repentance mean? It's got a dual, dual sense to it, although it all combines. One sense is, is mental. I'm going to change the way that I'm thinking. I've been live, thinking that the way I'm, I'm going is okay. I've been thinking that God is unfair. I've been thinking a number of different things. There's also an active sense to it, where I'm going to turn from those things and turn back to God. I'm going to change my mind, and I'm going to change my behavior. That's repentance. And repentance matters. When John the Baptist showed up dunking people into the water, that's what baptize means, his, his message was, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sins. Stop thinking these sinful thoughts. Let go of these weird ideas you've got and stop living out these bad habits. That's repentance. Well, that's John the Baptist. What about Jesus? Huh? Jesus, same thing. Jesus crossed the Jordan after being in the wilderness with the devil. And he began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus sends out his disciples to go through all the land of Israel. And he tells them to go out saying, Repent. Repentance. It's the act of turning from sin, changing your thought, and moving towards God. God always looks for men to pray when disaster has come. God is always looking for people that are going to turn 
away so that they will not have to endure the destruction anymore. Ezekiel 22.30, God said, I looked for a man to pray, but I couldn't find one. So that's why the judgment had to come. I looked for somebody that was going to repent, to take leadership and ownership of my people and repent for them and lead them in repentance. And that's exactly what Daniel does now. Do you see this? He uses we language. We language. First person plural. We, us, have done these things. We have sinned. Not they have sinned. Not God, I'm sorry about what they did. We have sinned. He's taking responsibility. It's like when Moses prayed for the children of Israel when they sinned with a golden calf. He said, Lord, forgive them, and if not, punish me instead so that they can go free. Or in Romans 9, when Paul said, I wish that I could go to hell so that all the Jews could be saved. Now, obviously, you can't do that, but it's that attitude that Daniel also possesses. It's identification with the people. It's like, Lord, you see how messed up they are, so I mean, you got to do something. It's identification with the people. So this is our lesson for today, because we're talking about prayer and repentance, especially at a personal or a national level. You can't go about, God, we've got to pray for all the things they are doing. You don't do that. Don't speak of them, but speak of we. Speak of us. Speak of me. What have I done? Well, I didn't do none of that stuff. <laughs> Neither had Daniel. Daniel was not an idolater. Daniel was willing to die rather than, than bow down to an idol. He was willing to die over keeping the kosher food laws. So Daniel was not himself personally guilty, but Daniel is going to pray as if he was. And the same thing for you and I. We're such an individualistic society, and there's a lot of good to be said for that. But for today, you cannot dissociate yourself from your nation as if you have nothing to do with that. Now, in one sense, you, you are separate from that. You're a sojourner. You're in exile in Christ. You don't belong here. But in another sense, you are a participant in what goes on. By living in this nation, you're part of it. Don't be so prideful. Because you've got, what did Jesus say, right? Before you seek to take the speck out of your brother's eye, what do you do first? Take the plank out of your own eye. Jesus, you see a little speck in somebody's eye, you've got a block of wood sticking out of it. Well, I don't know that I do. He said, well, why don't you just at least check the mirror first and be sure? So this is the first lesson when you're praying for repentance, especially national repentance. Say, God, can you believe what these people are doing? Lord, what have we done? Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Did Jesus deserve anything that happened to him on that cross? No. In the ultimate act of intercession, the man that did not deserve any of the punishment took it all on himself. Which is why Christians are to be prayerful about the things that happen around them and the sins that grieve them so rather than being complainers about it. So what does he do? How do we do this? All right, we're going with this, this us mentality. <clears throat> he starts with worship. If you're going to pray and you're going to repent, start with worship. Acknowledge who God is. He ascribes appropriate titles to God, that he has, he has power and that he's faithful. Because he's acknowledging that God has the ability to answer this prayer. Also that God is faithful, meaning God is not going to change his mind like some Greek God that gets tired or hungry and decides, never mind, I'm not helping you anymore. God is faithful. It's good to do this. This is why in our prayer meetings we always start with worship. Because you need to know who you're praying to. And a lot of times when you get fully, fully into it, worshiping and praising God, you realize, you know what? I, I, I'll still pray, but I really, I'm, I'm good. God's got this. God's got this one. And he continues then with plain confession. I love how he just comes out and says it. We have sinned. 
If you look at it in verse 5, there's actually five different ways he says this. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and rules. He's, he's not ducking the reality here. We can do this, unfortunately, when we pray, even when we're asking for forgiveness. It's like, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did, but I mean, you know what I'm like, and, and you know that that was a pretty bad temptation, and, and yeah, and, and you know, I mean, Adam sinned, really, so it's his fault, ultimately, and, and you know, God, but I, I would really love some forgiveness. No, man, you can't do that. Those are the kind of people that John the Baptist sent away. Go out and bear fruit worthy of repentance if you want me to baptize you. It starts with this plain, obvious, I have sinned. David was forgiven in an instant for all that mess he made with Bathsheba because he did not fight with the prophet when he came and rebuked him, like Saul did. Saul's going back and forth with Samuel about, no, I didn't really sin. Let me explain it to you. Nathaniel tells David what happened, or Nathan tells him, and David goes, I have sinned, immediately, first words out of his mouth. And then the next words out of Nathan's mouth were, God has forgiven you. That fast. But as long as there is that dishonesty between you and God, sometimes we don't want to pray what we've done, because then we have to admit to ourselves what we've done, and then it becomes real. Because you know when you're in the zone and you sin, you're not really thinking clearly. And then it's over and you're ashamed of yourself and we get really good at hiding it and burying it. And if I never talk about it and never think about it, it's like it never happened. But then when you come to God, he wants you to confess your sin. We say things like, well, I'm just not doing as good as I could have. And God goes, you mean you committed adultery? You know what I mean? Or you mean you ain't read your Bible in 18 months and you're wondering why your soul feels dry? Right? <laughs> confession. Real confession. As long as there is something that you won't say to God, the devil will have a hold on you. Amen. It's fine. If there's something you won't do to get rid of sin, that's where I'm going to grab on as tightly as I can. Yeah. And specifically here, Daniel gets specific with the sin. He says, we've ignored the prophets like Jeremiah. For you and me, that's the scripture. You have the fullness of prophecy, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, Old and New Testament. Yeah. As Leonard Ravenhill put it, Sodom had no Bible. And they still got judged. And you and I have the Bible. We got so many Bibles in this room, you know, we could, you know, we could give them away and buy more. We got tons of it. That's a greater judgment for you. We've ignored God's word. God, and this is what Daniel's doing. He's not trying to weasel something out of God. All right, God, so listen, you know that I'm kind of powerful in Babylon. I'll build you a new temple if you just get us out of this. He appeals only to God's word. That's, the, that's something we're going to get to in another minute here, but it's all about God's word. Then he admits that they ought to be ashamed while God remains righteous in all his ways. He doesn't try to say, God, why did you do this? He knows good and well why God did this. To you belong righteousness, but to us, shame of face. Today's people seem so obsessed with blaming God for the world he made. When we are the ones who sin and make the mess. If you go to somebody when they're having a good day and you say, how would you like it if God controlled all your decisions? I could never serve a tyrannical God like that. Okay. That was the Unitarian argument, by the way, when they started to break away from the scriptures. They said, well, we should reject tyrants everywhere, especially and even if it's God. Okay, fine. But then they go out and they do something sinful. And then what do they say? Why did God make this happen? Now, hold on a minute. Five minutes ago, you were really excited about that independence that you have. And so now you're upset because you used your independence to sin 
And you say, why didn't God stop me? Or why didn't God stop them? Sometimes I wish I had independence and everybody else was just like a computer game NPC. Just, they don't do anything. <laughs> well, just how do, it's really hard to believe in God when you see how terrible things are. You mean how terrible people are? Terrible you are? Look in your own soul, friend. Well, I'm great. I'm wonderful. I'm delightful. Are you? Well, I keep a lid on all that evil, but it's in there, isn't it? It's in there. We make a mess and we blame God. Why would God do this? God didn't do that. You're saying that God isn't in control of everything? No, no, don't twist it up here. God is absolutely sovereign, but God has allowed, he made a world for people to live in it. That's the, kind of the entire premise of the Bible, isn't it? God said, do, don't do this, and people did it. So can things happen that are not God's will? Yes, they can. God permits people to make real choices. Now, is God ultimately going to have his way? Oh, you better believe it. But God deals with real people. They used to say this. Ezekiel was the prophet in Babylon. So Daniel was in the palace. Ezekiel was down in the streets with the people. And they were saying this about God. They were saying, God is so unfair that he judged us for this. How could he send us away for that? But in Ezekiel 18, God tells Ezekiel to tell the people, the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. A lot of people feel real comfortable saying that today, don't they? And God says, oh, house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. God goes, fine, you want justice? I will give you exactly what you deserve. Ah, I don't know about that one, Lord. I mean, that's just not fair. Oh, no, it's exactly fair. A lot of times when we say not fair, what we mean is I didn't get special treatment. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. The way of the Lord is not just. God goes, no, your way's not just. Look at how y'all were living. Look how you're living now. You're going to blame me for that? Here's what, the thing, what we know. God is only just. God is only good. That's the definition of God. So when sin ravages your life, it's because you are out from under his plan. People want to claim all of God's blessings and don't want any of his commandments. God can't tell me what to do, but I sure hope he blesses me. And then something happens. Some terrible tragedy strikes your life because of sin. And you say things like, well, I don't know why God's letting this happen to me. Don't put that on God. You did that. That's, that's a clear marker of somebody who has not hit rock bottom yet. When something terrible happens that they did, and they talk about it like it's something that happened, like it was rain. I don't know why God made me overdose. He didn't. You took too many drugs. That's what, that's what happened. I don't know why God gave us this baby out of wedlock. God didn't do that. You did that. Well, why did he let me do that? Because of freedom that you love so much most of the time. He says, to us belongs shame of face. You are righteous, God. And then in verse 9, he says, to the Lord belong mercy and forgiveness. What does that mean? It means mercy and forgiveness are in God's hands, and he can give it to whoever he jolly well pleases or doesn't. You owe me. No, we don't. Mercy is owed to no one. God has the right to either punish or pardon. Nobody has a right to forgiveness. God does not owe you a second chance or a third chance or a fifth chance. The minute you sin, it's, you deserve judgment. Well, God usually delays for other people. That's mercy. He doesn't owe it to you. 
Well, God gave them a second chance. You're not guaranteed one. When your life collapses, the first thing you've got to do is confess sin. You've got to admit, I ignored God, and I've got to come back on my knees. I don't want anything to do with the scripture. That doesn't have anything to say to me. I'm going to live my life. And then it falls to pieces. Why would God do this? No, no, no. Confession of sin. Lord, I blew it. I didn't listen. I ignored everything you said. I didn't do a one thing that you said. And now my life is a mess. Confess first. Start there by admitting what you've done. This will happen when people come up to me after church sometimes and ask for prayer. And, you know, they're like, hey, just you know, pray for me. I've got some things going on. And, yeah, I, just, I, I haven't been doing right. And so, well, what, what's been going on? Tell me. Well, I mean, you know, just this or that. And I say, is it this? You know, and I name whatever it is that they're very obviously dealing with. And then they just break down and they start to cry. They knew what it was. But hearing it openly stated just breaks them. That's the place that you've got to get to. If you're not there yet, you can get there today. If you let yourself think that. It will not be pleasant, but it will be absolutely necessary. Verse 11, and I've got to go faster. It's all good stuff. Verse 11. So first he confessed sin. That's the first part, right? The second thing here is he's going to acknowledge justice. It's an acknowledgement of justice. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, your, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. He's acknowledging the justice of God. He specifies that this exile that they were going through was part of the covenant they had made with God. It was not the end of the covenant. It was part of the covenant. God chose Israel to be his chosen people. He called first Abraham. Then Abraham's son, Isaac. Then Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. It went to Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. He had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. They lived in Egypt for 400 years. They were oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. God brings them out of, the, out of Egypt. You know the story. And he goes to Mount Sinai. And when he gets there in Exodus 19, he tells the whole nation. He goes, look, I had a bargain. I had a covenant with your, your forefather, Isaac, Abraham, Jacob. Would you like to continue this? I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll give you a law that you'll keep. I'll teach you what's right. I'll give you a system of worship so that you can know the true God. I'll bless you. And, and if you reject me, then I'll curse you. Would you like to take that deal? Make this covenant. And they said yes. And in Exodus, they made the covenant with the Lord. They confirmed it. And throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, second half, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God outlined the terms of that bargain, of that covenant. The blessings and the curses of the covenant. The law was what they were supposed to do. 
He gave them a sacrificial worship system. He gave them judgments of like, if somebody does this kind of thing, this is the kind of, of punishment they deserve. This deserves the death penalty. This deserves a fine. This is no big deal. God laid out all kinds of laws that even become tedious for us to read. But it's very significant because it relates to what happened to Daniel and his countrymen. He says, if you obey me and serve me and worship me, then I will bless you. And he wasn't even telling them to be perfect. He says, if you, if you do your best to keep my law and then make use of the sacrificial system I have provided for you in repentance and obedience, then I'll bless you. But if you throw all that aside, I'm going to curse you. Now, why is that fair? Number one, because they entered into it voluntarily. Number two, because the blessings far outweigh the curses. And number three, because God is saying, if I'm going to publicly identify you as my people, and I'm trying to let the whole world know that there is one true and living God, they've got to know who they're dealing with. If I indulge you and allow you to get away with all the terrible things that you do, then I, how can I, in good conscience, judge other nations? And Israel did sin, man. The whole book of the Old Testament tells about this. Idolatry, sexual immorality, witchcraft, injustice of every kind. And so God did judge them, as he had said. Deuteronomy 28 is a whole long chapter about all the bad things that would happen to them if they broke the covenant. And it says in verse 64 and 65, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. So part of the deal they made with God was if we push our wickedness so far to the limit, God will allow an army to come in, destroy their nation, and scatter them all over the world. That was part of it. And that's exactly what happened. There was no room for these people to say, well, this, is, this isn't fair. That's why Daniel comes in and says, God did everything he said. He didn't do one whit more than he had promised. We didn't keep your law. We didn't worship you. We didn't do any of that. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. For the Lord, our God, is righteous. Righteous, that word can also be translated just or fair. And God is doing exactly what he promised to do. What we entered into as an agreement voluntarily, willingly, both eyes open, and that we enjoyed the blessings of for centuries, but we flouted our responsibilities and judgment came. They couldn't say, oh, special circumstances. You don't understand what it's like. It's a different day and age now. God goes, I don't see it that way, and uh, I'm God, so we're going to go with my decision. Not only that, but he warned them over and over again. So we didn't listen to your prophets either. I mean, all the prophets of the Old Testament, many of them aren't even named in your scriptures, warning the people that you are going against God's law. God told you what was going to happen. If you keep doing this, here's what's going to happen. And they'd say things like, why you got to be so depressing all the time, man? So why, why are you prophesying like this? Nobody wants to hear that. Amos, go home. Nobody wants to hear this. This, if, you get, if you go preach it back in your city, if they, maybe they like it there. We don't like your prophesying here. King Ahab would say of the prophet Micaiah, I don't like him. He never says anything happy. Because it's not his job to say happy things. His job is to warn you. And whenever the people repented, then the prophets had nothing but happy things. Right? Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people when they repented. 
But a prophet's job was to have an extremely spiritually critical eye. Be able to recognize when it was fake. Hosea does that. If you read in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, there's all this repentance. The people say, let's turn unto the Lord. He'll heal us. And then the very next verse, Hosea rebukes them for their hypocrisy. He goes, that's all fake. I've seen this a million times before. I want to be a prophet. People can't stand prophets. Real ones. You know, we also have been warned by our Lord Jesus what happens if we don't keep his word. You know this one. Matthew 7, 26, verse 27. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain fell down and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and great was the fall of it. Well, I go to church. I read my Bible. So what? Are you building your life upon it? Or are you just listening to it so it makes you feel religious so that when you go off and sin, you feel a little better about it? He says, if you do that, it's it's a foundation of sand. And the house might look good, but the minute hard times come, the wind blows and beats against that house, it's going to fall. We saw this just a couple years ago in the pandemic, didn't we? There were tons of Christians in the church that looked, their houses looked just like everybody else. But the wind came and blew and beat against them houses and they fell. And where are they now? We don't even know. And all these things are coming out of their mouth. We go, where did this come from? This isn't God's word. This isn't scripture. This isn't the truth of God. And it turns out they had built it on a foundation of sand and it washed away. And let's be honest, there were some folks who we thought for sure would be washed away. And it turns out they've been building on the rock this whole time. Guess I just didn't like them very much. That's on me. You know, you not liking somebody is not the same thing as them not knowing Jesus, right? Jesus loved to do that. I'll bet you he sent out Simon the Zealot out there with Levi the tax collector when they went out two by two. So I'm going to send the radical revolutionary and the establishment guy together. I'm going to make them go out together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm gonna, let's see what happens. Jesus loves to do that because like, these differences shouldn't matter to you. So let's, let's make you guys work it out a little bit. That's a rabbit trail, so let's get back to it. A foolish man built his house upon the sand. And that's what happens, man. People come to, to the God and they say, God, my life is a mess. Why is my life a mess? Why is this such a problem? Why can't I get anything together? Well, listen, if you're living a life of lies... You're always lying. Can't help yourself. You can't even tell the truth. Or ingratitude. You've got all this wonderful blessings and you never stop to thank God or even thank your mother, for, I don't know, for helping you out. Or sexual licentiousness. You never restrain yourself sexually. Or maybe you indulge over here and you get really proud that you don't do this weird thing over there. Or debauchery. You're constantly getting drunk. You're constantly getting high. Or you're a petty person. Those are the big ones. But let's get to the ones that can be covered up in church. You're petty with people. You know, somebody comes and apologizes and you want to rub their face in it first. Pettiness. Gluttony. And sloth. If that's how you're living, friend, no wonder your life is a mess. That's obvious. This isn't a surprise. There's no, there's no, people will come, I must have some kind of illness. No, you're just a sinner. But I believe in Jesus. Okay, Satan believes too. Are you living out God's words? Are you living out the way he told you to? Because it's it's not just God's way. God doesn't give us arbitrary commands. They're good commands. right? He said, do not steal. That's a good way to live your life. Man, I think stealing is right. God should let me do that. We don't do it with that one. We do it with all the other ones, don't we? No wonder your relationships are a mess if you're living in sin. 
Because you don't have the, the foundational relationship of life, that of you and God, right. No wonder your career is a mess if you're slothful and lazy and gluttonous and petty and you're a gossip. Nobody wants to promote that guy. We all know that. Every single one of you has been to a new job and they give you, you, you get seated next to the guy that nobody wants to sit next to because it's your first day. And he starts talking about these people, they're, they, you know, they're not good to you and it's a terrible job and they don't promote people. And then you stick around for a few weeks and you're like, I think you're the problem. <laughs> like, shoot, I wouldn't promote you either. Because you're gluttonous, you're lazy, you're grumpy, you're always angry. You yell at the clients and you steal time. And like, okay, of course. Your relationships, your career, your mindset. Why am I so anxious all the time? Why am I so stressed? Why am I so depressed? Because you're not walking in the ways of the Lord. You're not taking the time to be still and know that He is God. You're obsessed with other things. You, you, you don't give your, yourself over to the Lord and His opinion of you. You spend all your life online trying to find out what other people think about you. No wonder. And all the time you're doing that, there sits the Bible, and it hasn't changed since the day it was written. Thousands of years. And it sits as a reproach to you. So what we try to say is, well, that's just the way things are, I guess. Everybody says, I guess I'm just an angry person. That's just the way I am. Everybody wants to identify as something today, right? You've got to pick something that defines you. I don't know why we do that, just in general. But there sits the Bible reproaching us and telling us, you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. So you're saying it's my fault? Yeah. Not everything that happens to you is your fault. But most of what you do, in fact, maybe all of what you do is your fault. But we try to debate with God. God, I don't, I don't think this commandment is right. God goes, okay, upon what are you basing that? Well, I really want to do it. That's not a good reason to do anything. And your kid shows up to the, to the candy store, any store, and they put the candy right there, right at like one, one and two-year-old eye level. And it's shiny, and it's colored, and it's sweet, and it's sugary, and they bring you a, you know, a big thing of chocolate coins or whatever. And like, I want this. No, you can't have that. Why not? Because it's not good for you. But I want it. That doesn't affect me any. You don't go, but I want to. Oh, say no more. There you go. Debate with God. Say, so, well, you know what, God? I went to college. I learned some theories about life. He goes, yeah, okay. Did any of them rise from the dead? Well, no, but I mean, it's, it sure makes an awful lot of sense. And God goes, yeah, well, my word has stood for thousands of years. And all the best people you know of believed it. So maybe there's something to it. Or we say, yeah, all this is true. This is something we deal with in the prison quite a bit. You, you lay out what Scripture says, and they go, yeah, I believe in all that. All these people need to hear that, but my life is special. My circumstances are different. People say this. and that's a, You don't have to be in prison to say this, by the way. Well, my life is different. Yes, I, I would control my temper, but you see, my doctor told me that I have a, a problem controlling my temper. That doesn't change a thing. You don't think the Holy Spirit is able to meet you in that, in that place also? Well, this is just normal, right? People sleep around. That's normal, right? Guys cheat. It's what guys do. We're men, right? Sin is not normal. It wrecks life. Nobody looks back and says, wow, I'm so glad I sinned. I, was, I wish I had done more rotten things. Nobody on their deathbed is sitting back saying, man, I wish I cheated on my wife more. Man, I really wish I had yelled at my kids more often. I wish I had embezzled more money from my boss. No, people don't do that. Those are the things people regret. But we think, well, I've got to find out for myself. Why? You don't have to. 
You don't have to find out for yourself. You can let God tell you. God is too good to allow you to thrive in your sin. He'll allow judgment to come into your life. I'm not talking about like doom, judgment coming, but God will allow you to get smacked upside the head every once in a while to get your attention. And this is what Daniel acknowledged. We began by confessing sin, but we moved next to acknowledging the justice of God. This mess that I'm in, this is right. I deserve this. I deserve what has happened to me. Now, if that's where we stopped, that'd be a real miserable place, but it's not. So let's get to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the the last one here, the plea for forgiveness. He's calling on God to show mercy and to honor his own name. What does that mean? He's like, God, we're your people. and Everybody knows we're your people. Wouldn't it be glorious to your name for you to restore these people out of exile and show the world how mighty you are? And show that even when you pour out judgment upon people, you're willing to forgive them for it? And he calls back to God's word again. He's calling on God's word. This is what you've said. This is who you are. This is what you have done. Calling on God to honor his plans to restore the people. Because that was part of the covenant too. I won't read it for time's sake, but Leviticus 26. The Lord says, when you're exiled into these other nations, if you call upon my name, I will remember you and remember the land and bring you back. That was part of the covenant too. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he said, Lord, Hear us when you scatter us to other nations. Hear us when we pray towards this holy place and ask for forgiveness. And that's what Daniel would do, right? He'd open up his windows towards Jerusalem and pray three times a day. The land had kept its 70-year Sabbath, and it was time for them to return, and so Daniel prayed. And you've got to see in verse 18, look at that. Open your eyes and see our desolation. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. He bases his prayer for help upon God's mercy, not their own deservedness. If you pray with your own credentials, you have not yet been humbled enough. If you still think you've got something to offer God, you've not learned your lesson yet. You're saying that I should just look down on myself? No, it's called humility. Knowing where you stand. That your sin is what corrupts the world. You're not just a victim. You are a perpetrator of what ruins life. And you should come to God knowing that, God, I can't come to you and say, God, I was a good boy this year, like Santa Claus. Well, God, I, I, you know, I didn't put a frog in my sister's hair. And this year, I didn't yell at my boss nearly as much as last year. And, and God, I tithed once or twice this year too. So you kind of sort of owe me, Jesus. I won't put it that way, but that, that's, that's not what we do, friends. You come to God on the basis of his mercy. 
without pretension. That's why we start with confession. And then we move on to acknowledgement of of the justice of his wrath. Because if you haven't done that, you're not ready to come and ask for mercy yet. Ever known somebody? It's so tragic. Where they go through this terrible, horrible thing that would break anybody. And you talk to them, and they're the same person. They learned a thing. Like, well, you know what? I I still think they've got more to learn here. They're going to have to suffer again until they get it. But 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we start with that place of acknowledgement who we are and we come to God just asking for help, God is love. God is love. God will allow you to be forgiven and restored. Daniel based this prayer on God's word, God's promise to restore. So did John in that verse I just read. He's not saying, oh, God will forgive us because I think God will. He knew God would forgive because of what God did through Jesus Christ on the cross. The ultimate revelation of God. We've been talking today about repenting according to the scripture. The word of God. But John 1 tells us that the word made flesh and dwelt among us. Can I just mention this very briefly? Hearing a lot of people in the, the political sphere talking about the, the Christians venerate the logos. Not exactly. We venerate the word made flesh. Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's not an idea that we're worshiping. It's a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you and for me. It wasn't just a symbol of God's love or a symbol of this is the kind of suffering that you've got to go through. No, it was the opposite of that. I'm suffering so you don't have to. That's what you deserve was to have your back flayed open and a crown of thorns pressed on your head and to be mocked and scorned and hung up naked before everybody to see and then to suffocate to death on a cross. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserved. But Jesus, like Daniel in that we and us language, took it upon himself. And now God can offer us forgiveness. How do I know that? Because he rose from the dead on the third day. It worked. It worked. Why are we still talking about this guy? Because he rose from the dead. And the church, first and foremost, is the caretaker of the testimony that Jesus is alive. Handed down from person to person for 2,000 years. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And that's why we can say, according to Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Start with that believe in your heart thing. You can't just say the words and expect to be saved. Well, if as long as I say the prayer before my deathbed, I'll be good. False, Christian. You have to believe it. You have to believe in your heart that the story is true and everything he said is true. And then confess that Jesus is what? Lord. What does Lord mean? Master. I confess that Jesus is a good guy and, and, you know, he and I can be friends and I think he'd be a good advisor in my life. No, Jesus is king. You bow the knee. You turn from that old life and say, Jesus, you tell me what to do next. This is what happened in the Bible over and over again, especially the book of Acts. What must we do? Tell me what to do. Repent. Repent. Turn from that old life and start following Jesus. That's the word that we're clinging to when we pray for forgiveness. Confirmed by the blood of the Son of God Himself. The plea for forgiveness. God does not delight in punishing people. In fact, the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. 
There's a verse in Ezekiel where God says, turn back for why will you die? God goes, I'm telling you that the way you're headed is to judgment. That's like, imagine if you were, I don't know, imagine if you were shoplifting and out in the, in the parking lot, some, a judge, like some high court judge saw you and he goes, and, you know, doesn't arrest you or doesn't report you or anything. He goes, you better watch out because if I see you later on in the courtroom, I'm going to have to judge you. What, don't you like me? Don't you love me? I'm a judge. And God is a judge, is he not? But the Lord has delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed, and now you're here hearing this message today because he's trying to get your attention. Stop! Why will you die? He's so good. Turn back, he says. Confess your sin. Acknowledge his justice and plead for forgiveness. That's repentance. That's repentance. And this is not just for our personal lives, it's for the nation too, because that's what Daniel was praying, right? A national scale here. We look at the world today, and, and are we just shocked at the degradation of the times? And I know that sometimes it can be so easy to say this, and in, and in all honesty, Christians have been saying for hundreds of years that we've never seen times so dark. So we want to be careful, but at the same time, at least in my lifetime, in most of our lifetimes, we have never seen the Word of God disregarded and blasphemed and ignored in so many egregious, wicked ways. That's why we've got to be the, the people standing and speaking out. But if we want to see the restoration, we've got to pray like this. Pray for restoration, not let's get new politicians in there to fix everything. They won't. And guess what? God can get hold of the ones we got now. Isn't that something? Restoration to Christian when we pray for repentance, it's not going to look like it did before. God, take us back to the good old days. Good old days are gone. I'd like some new old days, some good new days, whatever you want to call them. That's what we can have, but guys, it'll be totally different. And this is something we've got to hear. You know, there's that, that law that's being passed right now where they're trying to enshrine homosexual marriage in the, as federal law. Don't worry, we won't, we'll let churches do their thing. Yeah, sure you will. Maybe you will, but maybe the next guy won't. But, you know, what gets me concerned as we talk about this repentance, repentance is what is needed. Not let's stop the progress, because there's so many Christians that are out there, well, we've got to stop this. And then we, we want to try to have this, like, little L here, libertarian view of everything else. Well, you can do that, we just can't make it the law. That's not how God looks at things. We always, the problem is, Christians get pulled along, right, by the hair, by the devil, and we keep on saying, okay, well, no farther than this, and then no farther, no farther than this. And the, the line gets blowed through. And I remember people tell me, all grown up, if, they, if the Supreme Court ever permits homosexual marriage, that's the end. It's done. Well, we're well past that. And people, you know what, are kind of over that. Haven't you noticed? You know, you, there's always a line. Right now, everybody's still mercifully shocked by the idea of pedophilia, right? But we're having a debate over whether or not we're going to have surgeries on little kids to make them transgender, to, to chop them up and give them hormones and all that stuff. But, but, what, but then what do you hear? People that are in the church say, we can't do that. Now, if you're an adult and you want to do that, go ahead. What? That's what we're going back to? I don't think so. Or people say, this whole trans thing is crazy, but you know, there's some really good gay people out there. Excuse me? God's word calls that an abomination. It's a sign that judgment is being poured out upon the world. Well, as long as it's not married, then you can do whatever you want. I don't, what is this? It's not God's word. What do you want to go back to? We're just going to get back to, to male and female, right? 
But to what? Fornication? And cohabitation? I see I've, people that should know better, people that I used to admire, that would say things like, it's just crazy because you know, Gen Z isn't having sex as much as the old generations did. Like it's a problem. I'm serious. People that should know better and claim to have sympathy for the church and God's word. Well, what else are we going to do? Oh, oh, you can't have sex, but then what are we going to do? Is back to the old obliterated gender roles in marriage? Where the husbands aren't leading and the wives aren't submitting? And they're not taking care of each other sexually to pro protect each other from adultery and other kinds of sin? We're going to go back to that? How about adultery? Just plain old adultery. At least get married. No. No. What about, well, at least get divorced first, and then you can be with the person you want. We can't go back to that either. But do you hear how mild these things sound to our ears now in comparison to everything else? That's how the devil gets you. He gives you something so radical and wild that you react to it so that the, the things that are also just as wicked in God's eyes, you, you don't get so concerned about them. Or maybe the pornography that drives the whole thing. When you get back to just that, more young women doing pornography now than ever before. Because you have all these crowdfunding sites where they can just do it from their houses. So it's not just a male thing. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. Well, you shouldn't do that. Okay, well, are we going to go back to just lusting in, our, in the mind? Well, that's adultery too, according to the word of Jesus. What's the point I'm trying to make? Y'all, you, you don't go back. You uproot things when you repent. It's all got to go. Well, that's too radical. People won't accept it. That, yeah. Hello? Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, he said. They, they didn't like me. They're not going to like you. But it's truth. It's truth. They put Jeremiah in a pit. They sawed Isaiah in half. How many Christians got burned at the stake? You cannot look on the world as an observer, Christian. You live in it. You've got to pray that way. Prayer warriors, taking the burden upon ourselves in prayers, giving it over to Jesus, who's the only hope for any of this. Well, there's this new guy, and everybody seems to be listening to him. If he ain't Jesus, I'm not interested. If your own life today is in exile, and you feel like you're, that's the best way to describe your life, I feel like I've been kicked out of home and nothing feels right and everything is collapsing around me, you can today call upon the Lord according to the terms of his new covenant to be saved and restored today. It can be done today. All that pain, all that struggle, all that fear, it can be over today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I mean like bow the knee to Jesus and swear fealty to him as the king of kings, and turn from your wicked ways, and believe, choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And for the rest of us, Elijah taught us how to P-U-S-H, to pray until something happens. Are we willing to do that, be 1 Kings 18, to be like Daniel and pray, to be like Moses and pray for the people that God's ready to destroy? You know, we've been talking about the end times, and I'll close with this here through the book of Daniel. Sometimes we get so excited for it to come. It's like, well, there's nothing God can do to deliver us out of these times. Yeah, there is, man. Yes, there is. My God is not done. Pray, Christians. Gather as a family and pray for your nation. Set a little alarm on your phone or your watch three, three times a day. Pray for the nation. With us, we language, confessing sin, acknowledging justice, and pleading for forgiveness. And let's see what the Lord will do.